Okay, we are uh, working our way very carefully through uh, Romans chapter 9 and particularly the last uh, half or so of the chapter which we've taken several weeks on already. And uh, last week uh, we... uh, we were working on uh, verses 19, 20, 21, etc. Uh, well, actually, last week we were actually kind of working on 22 through 20, uh, 23 or so, 22, 23, 24. Uh, and uh, we were kind of taking those verses kind of from one approach, and I'm going to back off and take them from a little bit different approach today, and I'll explain that again. Uh, here in just a minute, uh, but we were looking last week at uh, at 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath, etc., and verse 23. Uh, and uh, today we'll pick it up right there again. So let's back up and begin reading in verse 19 to get the whole context of this section and read down through verse 26. He says, "You will." Say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use or dishonorable use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for His glory. Even us, whom He also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles, As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in that place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. Okay? Well, uh, Let's go back then to uh, verse 22, 23, and think about some of the things that we talked about last week. What is Paul doing here in these verses, verses 22 and 23? Okay. 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 So we have two different kind of vessels, and Paul begins his uh, begins these verses. He says uh, in verse twenty two, "What if, or if, or what if?" And uh, and Paul is proposing a what if question. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But in the context of these verses, he's they're really kind of three entities or three persons, if you will. Uh, there's God. And there's vessels of wrath, and there are vessels of mercy. And uh, so, what I did last week is I focused primarily on the subject of what are the vessels of wrath, or who are these vessels of wrath, and what are or who are the vessels of mercy. 
And so that's what we look at. And then today, what I want to back up, I want to back up and come back and really look at Paul's overall question, which is what if such and such, such and such. Okay. So last week, as as uh, as Milford was pointing out, we talked about these vessels. What did we learn about the vessels of wrath? What's the uh, what was the, we, we said, what's the most important thing, the number one thing that becomes obvious when we're talking about vessels of wrath? That they're vessels, okay? And what's the significance of that? That they're created for a purpose. There's a reason for their being. Okay. And the, people are not Okay, okay, good. So it is an analogy. And with analogies like parables, you just want to figure out what's the main point of the analogy. You don't want to try to make an analogy, as they say, walk on all fours. You don't want to try to develop parallels at every point in an analogy, just like you don't in a parable. A parable has one point. You want to figure out what that point is and, and go with that point and not try and make a parable work at every place. So, and we use the example of the, of the uh, of the idea, the analogy where it speaks of Jesus being a door. Well, you know, the idea of the analogy is that Jesus is the way. He's the access, okay, that we have. Uh, but you don't try to make that analogy work and try and figure out what's the doorknob and what are the hinges and how does it, sw- you know, that that's all irrelevant. So, so as with a parable, so also with an analogy, there's one main point, okay? And, uh, and in the, in the analogy of the vessels, the vessels serve some purpose. Okay, the po- the main point, of course, of the analogy of the potter in the vessel, the main point is the freedom of the potter to do as he wills, to do as he wishes. But in an analogy of just the vessel, the idea is the purpose for which, the utility to which, for which this vessel exists. So we have vessels of wrath, and we have vessels of mercy okay and they each have their distinctive purpose okay what else did we learn okay and we'll talk more about that today the idea that that and throughout the potter clay analogies throughout the scriptures and stuff we see that the potter not only has the right to form something into what he intends or wants it to be, but he has the right to reform it into something else. Jeremiah chapter 18 is a classic example there where the potter begins to form it, he gets spoiled, and so he reforms it into something else. Okay. What else? Okay. The potter was in control, but at the same time, Vessel became marred Yeah. And that influenced how the father decided to make Yes, exactly. So, somehow in the process of making the vessel, and of course in Jeremiah 18 he's speaking about Israel there, and somehow in the process it becomes marred. Obviously, the, it was not the will of the potter that it be marred. And so when it became marred, then he altered it in order to make it serve another purpose. Okay? What else? Something I tried to point out last week. When he calls, when he says here, when he refers to the vessels of wrath as vessels of wrath, 
And when he speaks of the vessels of mercy as vessels of mercy, what is he what is he referring to there? I didn't ask this question very well. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. He's probably referring here to people groups, right? Uh, there, there are some who would see that, uh, think that he's referring here specifically to individuals, but he has been referring up to this point to people groups, and he's going to do so again immediately after these verses, right? Okay, okay. And we and we elaborated on that. And part of the reason that we say that is when we need to understand when he speaks of vessels of wrath and when he speaks of vessels of mercy. Remember we said vessels have a purpose, okay? But when he calls a vessel of wrath a vessel of wrath, he's not referring to the purpose of the vessel, he's referring to the condition of the vessel. Okay. How do we know that? Because later, we don't know it yet because we're only here in chapter 9, at this point in chapter 9, but as we go on through chapter 9 and into 10 and into 11, as he goes on and he talks about the Gentiles and he talks about the Jews and he talks about how, they, how he uses them, he's using them for the purposes of effecting salvation among other people, right? So he uses the Jews in order to win the Gentiles, and then he uses the Gentiles to provoke jealousy among the Jews so that they'll come to faith. And so, so the utility of the vessels has to do with God's, uh, God providing mercy to all, as he says there at the end of chapter 11. He has shut up all under sin in order that he might show mercy to all. So the utility of the vessel has to do with God's salvation plan or his redemptive plan. Okay. So when he refers to them as vessels of wrath or vessels of mercy, he's not referring to their utility. He's not referring to the purpose that he has for them. That's stated elsewhere. What he's referring to is the condition that they are in. They are in a condition of either being under the wrath of God or, or being objects of God's mercy. Okay? So that's their, that's their condition. Their purpose is another thing, which he will deal with later in this section. Okay? So that's uh, uh, another thing we talked about last week. So, Rick, is, you're talking specifically, to, uh, or what I'm thinking of specifically, is he in verse 22, where he says, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Yes. You're saying that is not their their... They were not created for the purpose. They are not created for the purpose of destruction. Yes. 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 They are under the wrath of God, like he talks about in chapters one and chapter two. And in fact, we looked a little bit at chapter two, uh, and he says uh, uh, in uh, he says. Uh, uh, in verse four, do you not think you? Uh, Uh, No, excuse me, verse 5. 
but because of the stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. This idea that because of their stubbornness and their sinfulness, they have, uh, they have stored up wrath. And so, so that, yeah, that was a good way of putting it. I appreciate that. Anything else from last week that we talked about that comes to your mind? Okay. 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 We pointed out that there's really the the idea of uh, the word prepared there is translated prepared in our English Bibles in verse uh, 22, prepared for destruction, and in verse 23, prepared beforehand for glory. Those are two entirely different Greek words. And the and the Greek word that is used in verse 23 is only used in reference to God. It's never used in reference to anything else. And uh, and it has the idea the beforehand as part of it. So it's, it's they use two words to translate it in our English Bibles, prepared beforehand, but it's all one word in the Greek. And it's a word that is only used in reference to God, that God prepares beforehand. And that sets it apart or makes it distinct from the preparation that, that he talks about in verse 22. In verse 22, the preparation, it doesn't say anything about God. Okay? And, uh, and, and it, has, it has more to do not with the idea of what's happened before, but, but someone's current condition. They are now made ready for judgment. So it brings back to mind this idea that we just looked at in, in Romans chapter 2, that they have, by their refusal to listen to God and refusal to obey God, they have brought this wrath upon themselves. They have prepared themselves for the wrath of God. Yes, sir. In, in that translation, in verse 23, it talks about being prepared for the Lord. Uh-huh. And in verse 22, it says, we are right for destruction. And that, that idea, right, is a good... Is that, 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 that's, not a, that's not a full sense, but, it's, but that sense is there. That's in the Word there. The idea of being right, or as we talked about last week, oh, you... Uh, those football players are out there right now and they're trying to get ready. They're trying to get prepared so that, you know, come first first game of the season, whenever that is, you guys probably know. 31st, okay. Uh, on that, when they walk on the field, they are fully prepared, but it is something that they have done to themselves by all of their work and all of their diligence. That's the idea of the word in verse 22, okay? And so that's important to keep in mind. Well, then we talked, and I want to elaborate a little bit more about this and then go on. We talked about these vessels of mercy. And again, the vessels of mercy is a description of their condition, not of their purpose. Okay? Because their purpose he's going to deal with later in, the ch- in these chapters as we go forward. But this is their condition. They are under the mercy of God. They have experienced or received the mercy of God. Okay? And the question came up last week as to whether or not these vessels of mercy were always vessels of mercy. And whether or not the vessels of wrath are always immutably vessels of wrath. Okay. And this is why the distinction between the description vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy is a description of condition and not of purpose. Because if Vessels of wrath is a description of purpose. And you think, well, these people, they were, they were 
that, that's their purpose. That's that's the reason they exist. Okay, and so they're they are immutably, unchangeably headed for God's wrath and God's destruction. Okay, and on the other hand, we have these vessels of mercy, and because mercy is the purpose for which they are created, they are immutably, unchangeably headed for mercy. Okay, but. But in reality, what we discovered last week as we looked at these vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy is that the condition of being a vessel of wrath is not immutable. One can be a vessel of wrath at one point and later become a vessel of mercy. Okay? So it's not immutable. It can change. Okay? And we looked at uh, some verses. For example, in Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 3, uh, Paul says to the Ephesians, he says, you, you, the Ephesian believers, all were children of wrath. So clearly they were at one point children of wrath. They are now, uh, you know, he doesn't say it in Ephesians, but clearly the idea there is you're now no longer children of wrath. You are, as he would describe in Romans, children of mercy. You are no longer under the wrath of God, but you are under the mercy of God. Uh, look at First Peter chapter two, and in First Peter chapter two, uh, Paul, or excuse me, Peter uses a, a passage that we're going to look at in in Romans chapter, a quote from the Old Testament that Paul uses in Romans nine that we're going to look at today. Peter also uses it here in this passage, and Peter says in uh, in uh, in verse ten, he says. For you were not a people. He's quoting from Hosea, or he's uh, he's uh, alluding to the uh, passage in Hosea that we'll consider here in a few minutes. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You were you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so we find out that the vessels of mercy were not always vessels of mercy. There was a time when they were not vessels of mercy. They were vessels of wrath. So we discover then that, the, that, there is a, that these two conditions are not immutable. That it's possible to be transformed from a vessel of wrath into a vessel of mercy. Okay? And another evidence of this is just the, the word itself. When he says to them, when he says, when he describes them, their condition, he says, you are vessels of mercy or these are vessels of mercy. What does the word mercy imply? When, when, when I say, when I, when I, pardon? You were in trouble. You can't be a you can't be a person who is under mercy unless at one point you were in danger. You were, you know, and but you received mercy. You at one point were under the wrath of God, but now you have received mercy. This is clear teaching of Scripture. We all were children of wrath. We were all under the wrath of God. This was our condition, and and yet. For, for I hopefully, hopefully all of us in this room, but certainly I hope for most of us in this room, we have now received mercy. I was a child of wrath at one time. 
I was under the wrath of God. As we talked about last week from Jonathan Edwards' favorite, uh, famous servant, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, I was like that sinner and so were you that Jonathan Edwards describes in that, in that terrible sermon where he describes us hanging by a thread over the flames of hell. That was our condition, every one of us. That's the condition of every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth. But some of those people have received mercy. Some of those people have become vessels of mercy. And we begin to see how the dominating theme in Paul's mind in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is the glorious mercy of God. A mercy that he wants to extend to all people as he says there at the end. He shut up all under sin in order that he might show mercy to all. This is where Paul is going. This is Paul's argument in these chapters. And so, so we have the vessels of wrath and out of these vessels of wrath then come some who are vessels of mercy. Okay? Well, let's back up now and look at this passage uh, because what Paul has proposed here is a what-if question. Okay, So he begins in verse 22 and he says, What if God, although willing? That's the way it's translated in our English Bibles. And, and uh, we talk about how he starts out with this, uh, this if-then statement, but he never gives us the then. Remember, we talked about that last week. And we do that in our conversations nowadays. Uh, and, and usually when we do that, that's a what if question. OK, we're asking a what if question. We're never we're not providing the if then we're not providing the then. If this happens, then this happens. If I go to AutoZone, then I will pick up a battery for my car. OK, it's an if then question. But what Paul has asked here is a question without the then. He says, what if? OK. And, uh, and there's a couple different ways that we use what-if questions. One of them is, for, for example, in scientific research, we, we ask what-if questions. We say, well, if we did this in our experiment, what if we did this? What would happen? And we ask ourselves, and we try and extrapolate out and figure from what we know, what will happen if we, you know, if we pour this chemical and this chemical together in this test tube, what will happen? You know? And if we're lucky, it'll blow up. Or whatever, you know. Okay, so we ask, what if? Okay, so that's kind of a question where you really don't know. There's, there's, there's serious questions about what you don't know. There's another way we ask a what if question. And, uh, and if I say to you, so, so what if I don't mow my lawn today? You know? And it's as, if, it's as if I'm saying, it's no sweat off your back. If I decide not to mow my lawn today, it's no big deal to you. How does it bother you? What consequences of that? What possible objection could you have if I choose not to mow my lawn today? Okay. Well, that's the way Paul is using the question here. In other words, he's not asking, I wonder if this is the way God has dealt with things. What he's saying is, this is what God's done. What possible objection could you have to it? Okay. This is what God has done. What God has done is though, although He is willing to demonstrate His wrath and make His power known on vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, He has endured with great patience, excuse me, although He's willing to do this, He has endured with great patience 
these vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he has done so in order that he might demonstrate the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy which he prepared before and for his glory. What he's saying to this, to this opponent, this imaginary opponent that we've talked about quite a bit, this imaginary opponent, this recalcitrant Jew who refuses to believe the gospel, who refuses to accept uh, Christ as his Messiah, and, and is objecting at every point to Paul's message, and we've already encountered him in these verses, and to this person, Paul is saying, what if God was willing to do this? Now, his illustration earlier that he used, remember, of this example of this being at work was Pharaoh. And he talked about how God put up with Pharaoh, and he did more than put up with Pharaoh. He actually enabled Pharaoh to be, to be strengthened in order to continue to resist these ongoing plagues in order that it would actually ultimately reach a climax in which the Passover would occur and the glory of God would be displayed to the nations and little Rahab over there in Jericho would hear about that and she would get saved and she would throw in her lot with the people of God. But that that would happen all over the world. That's what he said. I'm going to do this so all over the world people will hear my glory. Okay, So that's the recent illustration we have, but Paul's going to turn the tables on the Jews because in the story of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's the bad guy and the vessels of mercy are the Jews. But he's getting ready to turn the tables because of the Jewish rejection of Christ as the Messiah. In the following chapters, he's going to show how now the Jews are the ones whom God is enduring. He's putting up with in order that he can save the Gentiles. So he's getting ready to flip the tables. But so his question is to this, to this recalcitrant, stubborn Jew that's his imaginary opponent here. He's saying, what if God was willing to demonstrate his wrath and make it? Now, remember, this is the kind of what if like what possible objection could you have to this? OK, this is not the what if like we don't know if God's really doing this. We do know God is doing this. We've established this from other places. This is what God is doing. What possible objection could you have to that? It's almost instead of a what if, it's more like a so what. Yes, yeah, exactly. It's kind of like a so what if God decides to do this. Okay. But I want you to notice what it says. God is what, it says. What if God is what? No, before that. Willing. Willing. Yeah, <laughs> he is patient, but but want to take him one at a time. God is willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known. Don't ever let that slip by you. See, we, want, we want to hurry to the mercy part, don't we? We want to hurry to the part about, you know, extending mercy to all. We want to hurry there. And there are some people who think that God just isn't willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, but he is willing. The fact that God has not yet fully demonstrated His wrath or made His power known is not an evidence that He is unwilling to do so. God is not so controlled by His love and His mercy that He does not will to execute judgment on sin. He does will to do so. God is willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known. But he says, what if God 
though willing to do that, so he is willing to do that, endured with great patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So there are these vessels of wrath. There are these people or these groups of people who are under the wrath of God. They are, they are hanging by that thread, if you will, over the judgment of God. And, and God is willing to release them into that judgment. Okay. God is willing to do that, but instead, he endures, with, he endures them with great patience. That's what we see going on in Egypt with Pharaoh, right? God is putting up with Pharaoh's continual rebellion. He just keeps putting up with it and putting up with it. And for a while, Pharaoh thinks he's got a good thing going here because God keeps throwing these plagues at him one after another and he just keeps, you know, kind of taking it and his people take it and, and he's able to kind of... And he thinks he's doing pretty good. Okay, And so he keeps kicking and screaming and swinging and cursing God and, and, and God just puts... And it looks like God's never going to judge. Doesn't that describe our world today? You know what it's like today? Okay. And, and, and like the Israelis of old, like the Jews of old there in Egypt, we look at all this wickedness going on and people cursing and swinging their fists at God and saying, oh, if there's a God up there, let Him strike me with lightning. And so He doesn't. And so they say, well, there must not be a God up there. And God just stands there and He patiently endures it. Why does He do that? Why does he? Why does he do that? Why doesn't he just, you know, when somebody shakes their fist at God and says, you know, let him strike me? Why doesn't he just do it? Prove his point. Win the argument. What does he say? Well, but his his power is the judgment. Pardon? Because he wants to show mercy, or he wants to demonstrate his glory, the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy. Why did God put up with Pharaoh for so long? Because God already had in his plan that he was going to share his glory with the nation of Israel. And he was going to bring the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And then His Shekinah glory was going to walk with them through the wilderness. His actual visual presence of God in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire and ultimately over the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. The visible presence of God. The glory of God was going to be associated with Israel. And Remember back in chapter 8 we kept talking about this idea of glory? And, and, and how that is the destiny of every child of God and how all of creation groans waiting for the revelation of the glory of the sons of God. Remember we talked about that? This thing about there being a group of people upon whom God unloads some of His glory is, is central to Romans chapter 8. And Paul now picks it up again in Romans chapter 9. 
And remember, we talked, what is glory? What is it about? And we talked about glory having the idea of both weight and splendor, right? We talked about God's glory. And, and God's glory is, is, is the sense of His weightiness, of His significance, of His greatness. And then it's the, the other aspect of glory is the idea of splendor, His brilliance, His beauty. Okay. And He is... He is abundantly wealthy in glory. And he wants to show that abundance of glory by dumping a bunch of it on a bunch of people. (laughs) Isn't that incredible? That's what he wants to do. He wants to show the abundance of his glory on vessels of mercy whom he has prepared beforehand for glory. So he wants to do that with you and with me. He wants to make us really something important, something big, something great, something weighty. Now, some of us, we're weighty in ways we don't want to be, but he's going to make us weighty in ways we want to be weighty, right? And then he's going to make us brilliant. There's going to be a splendor to us. Now, we already have a little bit of that. Because we're made in the image of God, that image, as we said, has been effaced, not erased, but it has been effaced. It's been it's been clouded over because of the fall of sin. But eventually, that that's going to be removed. That that cloud that shade, that that covers our glory, and that thing which has diminished that glory is going to be removed. And once again, we're going to reflect the full glory that we were originally intended to reflect. It's going to be reflect. It's going to be a pretty magnificent thing. Because I think you people are pretty cool people. Most of you, anyway. I think you're pretty cool people, right? Okay. But boy, is it going to be exciting to know you in glory. Because boy, then I'm going to know somebody's really important. And you, some of you look pretty good now and some of you don't, but then you're going to look really great. You're going to be splendid. And God wants to do that to people. And so He puts up with Pharaoh's. He puts up with Pharaoh's. As Peter says uh, in, in 2 Peter, he said, he, said, he said a lot of people think, Peter's talking, he says, now a lot of people think that because God hasn't judged, He isn't going to judge. And Peter says, well, He is going to judge, but the reason He hasn't judged yet is because He's not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's all Paul's saying here, folks. He's just simply saying God has decided. What if God has decided that He's going to put up with vessels of wrath and He's going to have and He's just going to endure them with patience and He's doing so in order that He might show His glory, the fullness and the richness of His glory on vessels of mercy whom He has prepared before Him for glory. But remember this. It's the vessels of wrath who become the vessels of mercy. It's the vessels of wrath who become the vessels of mercy. We've already established that. That's why we call them vessels of mercy because they were once vessels of wrath. As Paul says in Ephesians, we were all children of wrath. As as Peter says there in that passage in First Peter chapter two, 
He says, we were not a people, but now we are people. We had not received mercy, but we have received mercy. There was a time when I had not received mercy from God. And now I have received mercy. I have received mercy. There was a time when I was not a child of God. But now I am a child of God. And God put up with me a vessel of wrath. He put up with me and He patiently endured me because ultimately He wanted me to be a child of mercy. And in His providence and in His foreknowledge, He knew what would happen. In His providence and in His foreknowledge, He planned my life and your life so that once I was a child of mercy, I could receive the glory that He wants to share with me. So when Israel was there in Egypt and they chafed under that slavery for 400 years and then it reached the climax when Moses came back to set him free and he began to confront Pharaoh and things got really bad then. Things got really ugly and Pharaoh started really beating up on the Jews then because Moses was there provoking him and making him mad. And those children are going, oh, this is so terrible. This is so bad. But God had a plan. God had already prepared them. He had prepared a plan and He had a plan in action. He was working His plan. He made a plan and He was working it to share His glory with the children of Israel in the wilderness. And so He put up with Pharaoh. And He put up with Pharaoh. And He put up with Pharaoh. And then we get past the sixth plague and God comes to Pharaoh and He says, you think it's bad now? He says, I'm going to harden your heart even more. And so he hardens his heart and it goes on for the seventh and eighth and ninth plague until we get to the Passover. And as we said, when we looked at those verses, had God not done that with Pharaoh, there would have been no Passover. There would have been no Passover lambs. There would have been no Passover lambs. That was God's plan. He knew that all the time, so he put up with Pharaoh. But it wasn't just that he put up with Pharaoh so that he could show mercy to the Jews. It's not just that God puts up with vessels of wrath so that he can show mercy to some other vessels over here that are vessels of mercy. But he does it in order that he can show mercy to the vessels of wrath. Because that's what you and I were. And so He put up with us. And some of us came quite soon to Christ. I did when I was just a little child. But some of you fought and screamed for many years, didn't you? You fought Him for many years. And God put up with that. And He didn't strike you with lightning. He didn't run over you with a, with a Mack truck. He didn't do any of that. He could have. He should have. He was willing to. But He didn't. He just put up with you with great patience in order that you would become a vessel of mercy. So who are these vessels of mercy? In verse 22, he says, or verse 23, excuse me, verse 24, I'll get there. In verse 24, he says, even us, whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. Okay? 
So now we discover that contrary to what the Jews thought was that, well, this good deal of being God's special children, this is just reserved for us Jews. And the Gentiles, they can only if they become a Jew, then it's then then they're in. But other than that, you know, you're just tough out of luck, kids. Okay, this is just for us people. Okay. And Paul goes, no. It's not just for Jews. This is for Gentiles. It says, whom he called, not only from among the Jews, but also from among the Gentiles. Now, there's two words here we need to think about. And one is that little preposition from. Because he talks about being from the Gentiles and being from the Jews. And it comes from a little Greek preposition uh, that we pronounce ek, okay? And it's just, it's a ubiquitous, you know, uh, uh, preposition. It's everywhere in the New Testament. It's all over the place and has actually uh, a ton of different ways that it's nuances in which it can be understood. And sometimes it's translated of and sometimes it's translated from and, you know, it's just translated in different ways. And all that, of course, depends on the context. We, we've talked about this before, that the meaning of a word always depends on the context in which the word is used. That's how you determine what a word means. You know, it, it depends on its context. So if I say something is green, you have to know the context before you know whether I'm talking about this person being a neophyte or this being a, a color of wall or whatever. Okay, you have to know the context to know how I'm using the word green. And so it is with this little preposition act of. Okay, so it can be used in several different ways. Uh, and, and I think the context here makes it fairly evident the way it's being uh, being used here. Let me catch up to my notes. Um, uh, sometimes when we use this preposition, uh, uh, it can have a spatial sense. Uh, so we say something is from something or it's come from something. So we, we're thinking of it spatially. Something has moved from here to here. Okay. So when Paul says he has called them from among the Jews and from among the Gentiles, the question is, have they moved from being Gentiles to being these called people, whatever it means, whatever that means. We'll get to that in a second. Okay. Has, have they moved from here to here? Does that make sense? Have they ceased being, they haven't, they haven't ceased being Jews, right? They haven't ceased, or Gentiles, they, you know. Okay, a Gentile is always a Gentile. A Jew, ethnically speaking, a Gentile is always a Gentile. A Jew is always a Jew. So when a Jew gets saved, he's still a Jew, ethnically, right? Okay. Now, spiritually, that's a different issue. And Paul deals with it that way, too. But, but ethnically, they're always a Jew. So when he says that he has called them from among the Gentiles or from among the Jews, it's not, he's not talking spatially in the sense that he's called them out of into something else. Now, the word is used that way sometimes. He speaks of us being called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. Okay? Using the same preposition. That same little Greek word, ek. Okay? Choosing that same word. Okay. But there, very clearly, we have ceased to be in the darkness, right? And we are now in the light. So there it is used spatially. Okay? But it's also used, actually it's used a bunch of different ways, but the main, uh, or another way it's used, which appears to be the way it's being used here, is it's often used to refer to a, uh, uh, a sense of origin. 
So we say someone's from the Jews. Or, uh, or uh, someone's from the Gentiles. It means simply that's their ethnic origin. Okay? So they haven't ceased to be that. Or we say somebody's from Chicago. Okay? When we say that, we're not saying that they're no longer in Chicago. We say that's their place of identity. Or they, you know, they were born there and they're, they're Chicagoans. You know, some of us are from Oklahoma. You know, and you know, like they say, you can take the Oki, you know, take the Oki, uh, the the person out of Oklahoma, but you can't take the Oki out of the person, you know, whatever. You know, so uh, so that's the sense in which it's being used here. That God has called out of these people who are Jews and out of these people who are Gentiles, He has called us. Now, the question is, what does He mean here by called? Because we have the same problem with called as we have with the little preposition ek. It comes from the Greek word keleo. And, uh, and uh, it has a variety of meanings. So, for example, in English, when I say call, what does that mean? You're using your cell phone. You're trying to communicate to somebody at a distance, and so you call them. How else is it used in English? Pardon? Beckoning. Yes. Okay. So it, it has the idea when when my kids were little and I would come home from work and I'd get cleaned up and and then I'd go into the kitchen and my wife said, "Would you call the children to dinner?" Okay. Then I would go out on the street and this would make my wife cringe because my children would be scattered all up and down the street and what she expected me to do was to walk to them and tell them very politely and quietly. But I would what I would do is I would stand on the, on the in the middle of my yard. And I would get kids and I'd yell at the top of my voice so you could hear me all the way from North Cliff all the way down to the end of the cul-de-sac, okay? And my wife would no, don't do that, you know. But I would call and I would invite them. Well, I... Don't name your kids or your dog embarrassing names. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Okay. And, uh, and so I would call them, okay? When one of my kids were little, it's just a funny story. It has nothing to do with the lesson. But when, when my kids were little... Because there were five of them, they 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 had to rotate who got to sit where. Okay, and for some reason they thought it was cool to sit by daddy. Okay, so as soon as I called them to dinner, then they would start yelling, "Daddy, can I sit by you?" You know, and uh, so uh, one or the other of them would get the privilege of sitting by me for dinner. Okay, well, one day I went out. To, to call my kids to dinner and the neighborhood neighborhood kid across the street is about my son's age. He says, can I sit by you? <laughs> okay. So there's the calling. There's the... And, and that calling can have that, that... That can have kind of two senses. It can have the idea of an invitation or it can have the idea of a summons. Right? Okay. So it can have the idea of of, of a more gracious, you know, would you come, you know, you're invited to my wedding type of call. Or it can have the, uh, the President of the United States has selected you to serve in the armed services, you know. Would you please show up on your, well, it didn't say please. My notice didn't say please. It just said I was ordered to appear. I had a call. Okay. How else do we use the word call in English? 
Well, in Oklahoma, it means when you're taking the good away from the bad, you're pulling out. No, 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 that's calling. <laughs> yes. Uh, sometimes it's used... Uh, uh, sometimes it's used uh, to make a request or demand. We, we call for an inquest or we call for an investigation. So, in other words, the word call just has a lot of different ways. And the only way we know how it's used is, again, how? By the context. Right. Okay. We look at the context and go, oh, he's talking about calling his kids to lunch. Or he's talking about calling for an investigation. Okay. We look at the context. Well, so it is also in Greek. It's used in different ways. And it's used in some of the very same ways in the Greek that it's used in the English. But the, the key thing is, uh, the, some of the key ways that it's used is it's used with that idea of to invite or to summons. And sometimes in the scriptures when it talks about God calling us, it is that. It's God's invitation or God's summons to receive the gospel or, or, or to be saved or whatever. So sometimes it's used that way. Uh, and sometimes it's used to appoint to a task. So Paul speaks of being called to the, to the Gentiles, whereas Peter was called to the Jews. So it's an appointment to a task. And, and, uh, but in other places, it's used with the idea up to name or to designate. Actually, we do this in English too. I called my daughters here. I called one Christina and I called the other Teresa when they were first born. We gave them those names. We designated that as their names. Well, it has that idea in Greek too that so-and-so is called such-and-such or a father called his newborn son such-and-such. So Abraham called his new son Isaac. Okay, It's the idea of to name or to designate. So the question is in the context here, how is Paul using it in this verse where he says who he called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. How is he using it? Well, in the verse itself, it's a little hard to tell. So we might assume that he's using it in a sense of a summons or an invitation. But on the other hand, we know he's not calling us out of being Gentiles or out of being Jews. We've already established that. But rather that he's calling some who are Jews by ethnic identity and some who are Gentiles by ethnic identity that he's calling them. Well, the clue, the key comes in the next verse when Paul launches into his defense of his position by citing Hosea. And when he talks about Hosea in the next verse, he says, as he also says in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people. How's he using the word call there? To name or to designate, right? So I'm suggesting to you that given that that's how he uses it and that's how he's meaning it in verse 25 very clearly, and he's using it as evidence for what he has just said in verse 24, that that's how he means the word call in verse 24. In other words, that God has called us from among the Jews and from among the Gentiles, he has called some people his people. Now, he brings up this quotation, actually a couple quotations from the book of Hosea. And, uh, you know, if you have your watch upside down, you have a lot more time than if you turn it upside right. Uh, 
So he quotes from Hosea. Now, you remember Hosea. Hosea is the first of the minor prophets, okay? And, uh, and he prophesied to the northern kingdom. Remember the kingdom after Solomon was divided into the southern kingdom, Judah, and the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, the ten northern tribes, okay? And Hosea pro- prophesied primarily to the ten northern tribes. And he's kind of a really weird situation because we start right off the bat in Hosea chapter 1 and God says to Hosea, I want you to go out and marry a harlot. Okay, okay, weird, okay. God just asked his prophets to do weird things sometimes. Like the time he asked Ezekiel to lay naked on his side for three years or something like that. Okay, he just, God just asked his, because when they got his prophets to do really weird things, it got people's attention, right? And so he would ask his prophets to do, he would tell his prophets to do weird things in order to communicate some spiritual truth to the people to whom they're prophesying. And he told Hosea, he said, I want you to go out and marry a harlot. So he went out and he married Gomer. Okay. And Gomer bore him three children. Well, the first child isn't significant to our story, but the second child was a daughter. And, uh, and uh, let me just flip over there real quick so I get this all right. Uh, <clears throat> And, uh, and, and God says in uh, Hosea, he says, uh, uh, Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her uh, Lower Kama. Lower Kama. For I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would ever forgive them. So he says, You, you call this daughter Lower Kama. And Lower Kama means not pitied, not loved. So I want you to name this child not loved, not pitied. Terrible name for a kid, isn't it? I'd like to grow up with that name, okay? But he was trying to communicate to Israel that they have forfeited their privileged position with God. And then he goes on, and she goes, and she has a second child. And uh, it says that... uh, in, uh, in verse 8, when she had weaned Lo Rakama, she conceived and gave birth to a second son. And the Lord said, name him, this is a son, name him Lo Amani. For you are not my people. And I am not your God. And Lo Amani means not my people. So he named one child not to be pitied or not pitied and the other child not my people. And this is a description of Israel's condition under the, and during the time, uh, Israel meaning the northern kingdom, Israel's condition at the time of Hosea. Sounds pretty terrible, doesn't it? But if you go over to the end of chapter 2, you find out that the story changes. And in chapter uh, uh, 2... In 23, verse 23, he says, I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who has not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. And so at one point, God says through Hosea to the northern kingdom, he says, you're not my people and you are not my pity and you are not pitied. And so at that point, the, the northern kingdom becomes like the Gentiles to God. That's pretty bleak for a Jew. Okay? That's, pretty, that's pretty ugly. 
But then God says, sometime down the road, in the future, in the distant future, He says, I'm going to come and I'm going to show mercy and I'm going to call you my people. And you're going to say, my God. And it's this verse to which Paul goes in Romans chapter 9. It's this verse to which he goes. It's also the same passage that Peter there in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 goes. They go to this. But it's what's interesting with what Paul does in chapter 9 and what Peter does in 1 Peter chapter 2 is they apply it to the Gentiles. Now, how can they do that? This was a prophecy to the northern kingdom. This was a prophecy to Jews. How is it that they apply it to Gentiles? Well, it's very simple. Once God said to the Jews, you are not my people, they became like the Gentiles. And so for God to say to, the, to these people who are now like the Gentiles, you are my people, that's proof that God is powerful enough, God is sovereign enough, and God is merciful enough to say to people who are not His people, you are my people. And so Paul's argument is, if God can do that with these disobedient Jews, He can do it with the Gentiles too. And so God has called from both among the Jews and from among the Gentiles people who were not His people. He has said to them, you are the people of God. So, He... In His mercy, in His love, what if God, what if God, even though He was willing to demonstrate His wrath to you, even though He was willing to to demonstrate His power in judging you, what what if He was willing to do that? But He didn't do it. What if He chose to wait? What if He chose to endure with great patience your disobedience and your rebellion and He did so in order that He might demonstrate the riches of His glory on vessels of mercy whom in God's providence and His foreknowledge and His sovereignty in ages past had a plan that He would, with every vessel of mercy, that He would share His glory. God has prepared us to share His glory. He knew in His sovereign knowledge, He knew all that would happen. And He knew our response to the Gospel. And He said, those ones who believe in Me, to those people, I am going to share my glory. And there is a plan now established whereby all of us who are the children of God will share in the glory of God. And it's been prepared from beforehand.
So you who were not a people, now you are the people of God. And you who had not received mercy, you were children of wrath. You were destined for wrath. You were under the wrath of God. You were hanging, like Jonathan Edwards says, by a thread over the fires of hell. But you have now received mercy. Now what we learn in Romans 9-11 through is that God has done this for Jews and for Gentiles. And when we discover that God has done all of this for both Jews and Gentiles, God has forever slammed the door on racism. There is no group of people to whom God does not want to show mercy. And if God is waiting and not showing, demonstrating His wrath and making His power known, if He's not doing that, Peter tells us quite clearly it's because He's waiting for vessels of mercy. And that's true for the Jews. And it's true for the Gentiles. It's true for the blacks. It's true for the Latinos. It's true for the Arabs. It's true for the rich. It's true for the poor. It's true for men. It's true for women. There is no group to which God does not desire to extend His mercy. Okay? Next week we'll go on and pick up.